Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Father God, we thank you for giving us the testimony of the Torah. Thank you for all these things in the name of your Son, Yeshua. Amen. All right, so we are going to be getting into our discussion here today of the section called uh, Taramah, which means contribution, covering Exodus 25, verse 1, through verse 19 of uh, 27, uh, chapter 27. And uh, with that, um, I also point you to some of the previous studies that we have done on this particular section. You can find those at uh, halal.info uh, slash p19. That's halal.info slash p is in Peter 19 or p is in parasha 19. And you can find all the studies that we've done on this passage over the years along with uh, notes and references related to that. One of the questions as we start out here is uh, whether this particular section is, you might mention, a non-sequitur, because as we looked at our last Torah portion, Mishpatim, which uh, closed out Exodus chapter 24, uh, it ends with Moshe going up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And then the next, you could say the next thing that would come after that, you would think, logically, would be over... Uh, in we find it actually over in chapter 32 with the golden calf and that is going to be in the Torah portion uh key tisa which is in a couple of weeks so in between it it seems like wow there's this insertion period here and some sages have come up with an idea that perhaps this when we're talking about the pattern showed on the mountain that this could indeed be the section that's that's talked about that this section that we're reading here today and we will be going over next week the tetzave which covers chapters 27 through 30 and also the beginning a uh, couple of chapters of kitisa and chapters 30 and 31 with more instructions about the tabernacle that this could all have been that time period that revealing what the tabernacle looked like. Now, one of the things we've talked about before is that the, the content that we have in the Torah and other parts of the Bible is not necessarily listed chronologically, it's, rather it's thematically. You see that in the Gospels as well. Now, one of the things that we can get from this, and we'll notice that as we get into uh, the description of some of the furniture, that they are not listed in sequential order of all of the items that are in the particular room. And we will see that later, that you'll see the, the um, altar of incense being mentioned at the end of next week's section not in the section that we're talking about today even though the place where it is found the 
so so called the holy place that is where it is actually placed now one of the things that we can think about in this is that these are rather detailing us detailing for us what these places look like what they look like as we would walk in as they would construct it as they would take it apart and go on to their next place in the journey and it probably noticed a lot when you're going through this that you see the uh, poles and the poles and the rings uh, on each of these each of these furniture items because this is a mobile a mobile tabernacle that's going to be traveling with the people. Uh, uh, Pamela mentioned some of the particular um, renditions that people have done. Uh, here we have a picture from uh, Timnah in Israel. One uh, time that someone had constructed a just following the dimensions. Now there's the discussion of the cubit and what how long the cubit actually is. Is it 18 inches? Is it 20 inches? That can be open for debate, but you kind of have the rough dimensions between 18 and 20. Doesn't make a terrible amount of, of difference over the scale that we're working with here. But the two, um, the two descriptions that we have, or the two names that you have for the tabernacle, we are looking at here the Ha Mishkan, um, often translated the dwelling place, and the Ohel Moed, or the tent, the the dwelling place, or the 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 tent of meeting, the tent of the appointment, and we'll see that these particular terms for the the tabernacle, the Hamishkan and the Ohel Moed, are very appropriate because those are the two main things that you see in the reason for the tabernacle here and why it is actually important to continue to go over this um, description of it each each year because in this it's uh you could see if it is like a setting for when you when you read a description of a story and someone is setting up what the place looked like there give you descriptions of it and here you can get some sort of a reference for where where it is you're going to be going next in the setting for the story now remember as we go through here that everybody cannot just waltz in here at any given time so the description of the things that you're seeing inside this Hamishkan inside the Ohel Moed is not something that everybody can see at any given time. In fact, in the inner parts of it, um, there's only one person who is uh, actually going to see it in its fullness, not just something that uh, has uh, coverings placed on it in the midst of transport. So, for everyone, they're able to take a look inside to see what is going on all the way up to the place the very special place where the dwelling place of god is actually going to be and where the lord is speaking from between the cherubim um there's another rendition this one um messiahsmansion.com this one was traveling around california as well um probably from a very similar group to the one pamela talked about uh this one 
uh, was in Napa a few years ago where they had set it up. Um, again, gives you the idea that this particular tabernacle is uh, not necessarily big. But um, with the artist rendition that we were looking at in the beginning, you could get this picture that it is the focal point of the entire community. The, the, the whole community of Israel has this right in the midst of it because the instructions that we had uh, seen in the instructions for where this thing was going to be placed, all of the tribes were going to be camped around it. When we get to numbers, they talk about specifically which tribes are camped where, but you have the picture that this is going to be right in the midst of the dwelling of uh, Israel, right in the midst of the camp, is where this will be, which is why you have the instruction that this is going to be uh, the this is going to be the place where where God is going to dwell in the midst of the people, as we saw at the the er, the uh, opening um, passage in chapter twenty five is where this is going to be uh, pitched. So. Um, as we move into the tabernacle, you can. This is another artist's rendition of it. Again, you know, people have over a long period of time have tried to give some sort of a representation of what the Mishkan looked like, what this tabernacle looked like, and you know, you we get the basic ideas of it. Uh, different people have come up with renditions of what the pillars look like, what the what. When they talked about the Haravim on the curtains, when it talks about the colors, it doesn't talk about how they're arranged. Uh, various people over the centuries have had ideas on how the, the designs were put onto the, the, the doorway and the, uh, the veil that goes uh, when you first enter into the holy place and then the veil that goes into the most holy place. But again, really don't know other than it's said to put cherubim on it. And then what do the cherubim look like? <laughs> there have been ideas again over the centuries of what the cherubim look like. Um, and we just know that they're incredible uh, beans and that they're represented as having wings. Other than that, we don't kn really know. But as you peel back the details of the tent, we got the, the gates and you come into the altar and then you go to uh, the basin is not described in this passage. It will be picked up in the uh, subsequent passage we come up next week. But then when you go through the, the first screen into the holy place, then you have the lampstand, the table of bread, the altar of incense is also not described in this particular passage. It comes up in chapter 30 of Exodus. And then you have the, the second veil and the Holy of Holies, where is the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. Now, when we go into the, when we talk about the, uh, the entrance to the holy place, it mentions there in Exodus 26, verses 36 and 37, that you shall make a screen for the doorway of the tent of, uh, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. 
And then you have the poles of acacia and the screen overlaid them with gold, the hooks also being of gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Now, one of the things that we've talked about in years past, and this would be a good idea to check out some of these previous studies, is the items that you have in the, in the courtyard are uh, items of uh, the, the major furniture, the, the bowl that will be discussed in a later chapter, and the altar, which is discussed today. It talks about bronze. Uh, basically, copper is what the, what the Hebrew term points more towards, so things that are like of the reddish metal, and then also silver on the outside. And one of the things that you see in the connecting and looking at uh, Solomon's temple, the one that he built that's described in, in Kings, you also have this picture of the, the bronze items out in the courtyard. A lot more of the items out there in the courtyard, even though the uh, basic dimensions are similar, the, the scale of it went up considerably with Solomon's temple. And then when we finally get to the the uh, this the second temple uh, version two under Herod that uh, the scale of it went up even more and uh, it had a lot more ornamentation that was put onto it at this point but this here we're looking at is a tent and the items on the outside court of reddish material when you move into the in the inner court to the holy place. And the most holy place, it's gold, items of gold. And the picture there is one of a reddish material, like uh, blood-like, so things of the earth. And then moving on into a place where the things are of gold and they, they don't tarnish. They don't uh, rust. They don't uh, patina or turn colors <laughs> unless you polish them all the time. Even, even though you might kind of need to um, get a finer uh, polish on on the gold you're not having to worry about it actually uh, turning a different color on you now going into through this we've gone into the courtyard gone past the altar gone past this wash basin and then you go into the first section uh, into the first curtain and thus you get into the HaKodesh or the holy place is how it's uh, often translated. And that particular place was where you would have the, the priesthood would be serving on a regular basis. They'd make sure to maintain the menorah and uh, changing out, um, described in other places on Shabbat, you change out the uh, loaves of bread on the table of bread, and you have... Uh, Again, we mentioned it was discussed later in Exodus 30 about the altar of incense. But you then you have the, the parochet or the, the veil and different description of that veil versus the, the one that separated the, the HaKodesh when you go into the holy place. The, this parochet which separates the HaKodesh, the holy place, from the Kadesh HaKadashim which is the Holy of Holies, is even a, probably a literal translation of it. But remember last week when we were talking about in, in just Hebrew grammar, one of the ways that you get an exclamation point or an underline or a bold face is to repeat the same word, um, often you know, like using different forms of the same word together. So thus, 
here you have the Kodesh HaKadashim, get the Holy of Holies, or really holy, most holy places, then what another translation of it that gets that idea that it is um, emphasizing the holiness. Uh, sort of like when you have a, uh, talks about uh, Yom Kippur being a Shabbat, Shabbaton, or a Sabbath, and then you see the translation of it being a Sabbath of complete rest, because you've got rest, rest. It is a um, emphasized that you are uh, pausing. So here, with the Kodesh HaKadashim, then you have the emphasis that this is a place that's set apart, like with the HaKodesh, the holy place, but then it is set apart even more. And why is that? It is because that is the area where you have the dwelling place of the creator of heaven and earth. They are coming to a particular item. Now, maybe we, when we get to talking a little bit more about the Ark of the Testimony, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But this makes this... Um, uh, you know the the fact that you do not have a representation of the deity makes this sanctuary, this temple, different from what you would see pretty much if in the ancient Israel, ancient Near East world where Israel was, to other places on the planet. Where what do you usually see when you go into a temple? A representation of the deity, but here. Um, you see it in a number of places emphasize that you are not going to see a representation. And there's even the instruction to not make a representation of the Holy One of Israel. Very different. Because one of the, the things that we've talked about in previous occasions related to the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, is that later on in Israel's history, it was used as a as a lucky charm it was used uh taken out in in battle but when you see in those cases the the uh you could say that the glory had uh departed there wasn't the presence that was there above the uh between the cherubim uh when this uh when the ark was taken out in the battle and then it just became a war trophy. It was taken to off to Philistia. Now, when at that later time in Israel's history, it was taken to Philistia, uh, it you could say then the presence of the Lord did come back and did some fun things in the temple of the pagan gods, such as you know, give that the uh, pagan god a little flick and knocked it, the idol or the statue of the of the pagan deity onto its face so you did not have this idea of that the deity was trapped in the box rather the the holy one of israel came and met with dwelled with the people of israel from the top of this but it wasn't a uh, encapsulation of the holy one of israel so Thus, you see, when uh, the when David was uh, working up to build the temple, you know he he is re reflecting upon this and is like, you know, how can I make a house to contain you? There is no way that a house is going to contain the Holy One of Israel. This 
place, this Hamishkan was a place where you could say the the heaven is putting a finger down onto the planet, but that is not saying that that is exactly where the Holy One would be. Now, it gets into the interesting topic that we'll be talking a little bit about later with the uh, Hamishkan made flesh that we see in John chapter 1, verse 14. There we see a preview of coming attractions, a preview of the day of the Lord, a preview of the Messianic era, when, as you see there in Revelation you know, 21, 22, the dwelling place of God will be with mankind, something that the Mashiach, something that the Messiah institutes, brings into being. But if you do not have Israel uh, with the dwelling place of God there, then that temple of Israel is empty. It is unoccupied, which is contrary to what you see in a uh, popular movie that uh, came out, good grief, it's a long, long time ago in the, in the 80s, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And there, that was the rendition, I mean, the, the whole premise of the movie uh, just gets torpedoed because um, they treated the Ark of the Covenant like a, any other pagan sort of thing, that the deity and the power of the deity was in this thing, and if you just controlled the thing, then you controlled the deity. Well, uh, the rendition that you actually see in the Word is that, no, that is, these are items, these are patterns, these are copies of the things that are that were shown Moshe in the mountain that we saw earlier in our passage, but they were not the encapsulation of the Creator himself. So it's not like you can just um, you know put a nice polish on the Ark of the Covenant like a uh, a lamp of uh, some sort of genie and then have it respond and do what you want it. That's that's not the way the Creator of heaven and earth works. Not at the whim of people to do the bidding if you just appease the um, appease the deity and uh, then you get on its good side so a couple of things we uh, note here in the hakodesh or the holy place is that you have um, the lampstand the the menorah as it's called then you also have the table of the bread of the presence now there you have the <laughs> the as it's mentioned there in hebrew the uh hashul hashulchan lechem panim now lechem you might remember is lechem bread now panim is a very interesting word in 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 Hebrew, you've got some of these words that are plural in form, but you almost always describe them as being singular. Um, we're like maim for water. Water, is, you could say, I mean, strictly speaking, you should be, with maim, you should say waters. And you see in some translations of Genesis chapter 1 where they talk about above the water, or sometimes they say above the waters, and separated water from waters. But Strictly speaking, Mayim is plural, so it should be waters, just like with Chayim uh, for life. Um, that's like when we were going through the passage back in Genesis of uh, Chayim Sarah, or 
it really stri- strictly speaking should be called the lives of Sarah and you even had some sages um, start riffing on that idea as the the strict reading of it from Hebrew is that you're talking about lives plural and panim for face is very similar most of the time you see it as rendered in the plural and thus where you see uh, face you could say faces and the interesting rendition we'll be taking a look at it in a moment is it is also a way to say in before someone um back when we went through in the parasha yitro back in the ten commandments in exodus chapter 20 and uh it says you know do not have any other gods before me and strictly says there uh panim or in my face in my face is literally speaking but it just could take to say before me in my face so with the bread of the presence uh, taking a look at that is very interesting thing and we've talked about this in relation to the uh, orientation of the bread and the lamp the the bread and the light the menorah and the uh, lechem panim the uh, as, as some sages put it face bread the bread of the face so the interesting thing is, is that it makes specifically clear in this passage that the menorah is supposed to be shining light in front of it. Well, across from it is the bread of the presence with the 12 loaves to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and it changed out on each uh, Shabbat for fresh bread. Now, this passage we're taking a look at here uh, from Exodus chapter 25 Verse 30, you shall set the bread of the presence, the, the lechem panim, on the table before me. Again, panim, at all times. Now, the picture that you see here with the 12 tribes facing the menorah. And as we've looked about in, in previous times we've gone through this passage, uh, the prophets also talk about the seven eyes of God as being the uh, associated with the menorah so thus you have a picture in here of the seven eyes of god uh, looking at the 12 tribes and thus you can also see that you know faith in god and faith in his mashiach is equal to you know trusting in the one who works le'alam va'ed works toward the forever and beyond as we were talking about in a previous occasion with le'alam vayed is to really see beyond what you could see strictly speaking over the horizon and beyond so thus to trust the lord to trust his mashiach is to trust in the one who sees beyond where we can see who sees all things and thus you have uh, the works that we do are seen as well. And then we also look and see the works that God is doing as well. That's one of the things that when we went through the uh, the Song of Miriam, the Song of the Sea, as it's also called, that that is a big part of it is to look back, to remember, to look upon 
the works that the Lord has done and to remember those things, to anchor those things into our lives because these are things that we can fall back on when other things start to erode in our lives and reflect upon that this is what the Lord has done so then we can look to, well, what is the Lord doing now and what is the Lord promising to do in the future? So we look at, see what the Lord has done. We can see what the Lord is doing now. We can then depend upon what the Lord is going to do in the future. Because that's really how things work when you talk about trust and how you, how you talk about how you verify things or can expect how things are going to work. Um, one of the, the strange little quirks of, of science is that can the things that have happened in the past, can you expect them to work in the future? Well, strictly speaking, no, you can't. We trust that they will. We believe that they will, that the things that happened before will happen in the future, but um, if there is nothing holding them into place, those laws, those principles, how the, the world works with physics and whatnot, what's to say that they actually will hold together and still be the same in the future? We trust that they will. So there is a lot of faith in the world that even does not believe in God that things will remain as they are and there is something outside of the rules of physics, etc., that keep them in place. That's actually one of the great conundrums in, um, in the world of science is why things are steady over time, why things do stay in place, the, the laws that that is. So, let's look at uh, some passages that relate to this uh, this bread of the face, the face bread, that is a revelation of the uh, Yehovah Yira or Yahweh Yira, the Lord Yira, the one who sees or the one who will be seen. And we've talked about in previous occasions that the fear of the Lord, that the word for fear of Yara, can be sort of thought as a <laughs> a future form of the word to see or will see so that you can almost get a picture that fear of the lord is uh the lord will see the lord will see what we are doing so thus fear of the lord is to act and to live as if the lord will see everything that we do nothing that we do is hidden from him so thus how do how should we live so passage to take a look at first here uh, found in hebrews chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 now inc incidentally the <laughs> a good portion of the letter to the hebrews in the apostolic writings is talking about the tabernacle and uh, specifically covering the day of atonement which we'll get to ev eventually again in leviticus chapter 16 but it takes up a huge portion of the letter to the Hebrews. I mean, basically a good chunk of, and if you uh, count in the, the, the preamble of things, uh, chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, but really going from the, the latter half of 4 all the way through chapter 10, 
and uh, talking about the the Day of Atonement and riffing on some of the things that we cover here today on the items that are in the tabernacle and um, some of the uh, descriptions that are in the letter to Hebrews uh, got some people excited several years ago about what they they thought that uh, the letter to the Hebrews was had things in error of where it placed a, a certain piece of furniture, but uh, we'll get to that in, in just a bit. So this passage here, 11, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, you could say this is the preamble to the uh, what's often called the, the Hall of Faith or the, the faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. So like we were talking about before, trust, faith, trust is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So you are trusting that the Lord is seen, Leolam, seen over the horizon, past our lives, past the things that we can have any knowledge of. And we then hope for, we trust that those things will happen. And uh, as, as we move on, we see that that is a particular reason why Avraham is called a friend of God, not only by listening to his words and coming out of the place where he was before, to go to the land where uh, the, where the Lord was going to lead him to then start a people, a people that were set apart from the rest of the world for for service to be the ambassadors of the Holy One of Israel. Not only that reason being a friend, but also because um, he listened and he trusted when uh, the Lord said that he was going to create for him, from him, uh, mighty people. He then it it says that he believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is a foundational part of the whole adoption into the family of God is that trusting the Lord and then that is credited credited to the person as a righteousness, as walking in the way of righteousness, walking toward toward the kingdom. Which is interesting that when we talk about uh entering going and entering his rest that was where avraham started his journey lord said go lech lecha get going and avraham then went and he went from where he was to the land he entered the lord's rest and planted the lord's flag there that this was going to be the focal point of the world that this was going to be the focal point of the world uh, for the all the way down to the day of the Lord, that that was going to be the center point for calling the nations back to the Creator, the one who started the whole thing going in the first place. Another passage, taking a look at in Revelation chapter 9, uh, verses 20 and 21. Now, we talked about this recently in the context of uh, the festival of trumpets and the connection between the the plagues that you see in revelation and the especially the ones related to trumpets and the calling out of the people of god this in the context of revelation being the day of the lord but also 
the connection between the plagues that you see in Revelation and then the plagues you see in Exodus, but we just went through a few weeks ago, the ones that freed Israel from the house of bondage. So, this in the context of the process of freeing the world from the house of bondage. So, Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons, the idols of gold and silver and of brass and stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. So, thus you see the contrast that's going on here is that works of the hands. So, the idol is being created by the person, but the person is creating this idol, but the idol cannot see. It cannot walk. It cannot do anything in and of itself. So, they're turning away from the one who cannot be seen and says, do not make a physical representation of me. Yet, that is the one who actually does see what we're doing, does see the things that we do, the works of our hands. So, thus you can see where idolatry comes into being such a a big issue and why it is such an affront to the creator of heaven and earth. It says, you're going to turn away from me, who you don't see, but I see, and then you're going to turn to things that you make, but they can't see, and they can't walk, they can't do anything themselves. Rose, uh, do you have a question or comment? Uh, yes. Um uh, that la- that last verse uh, where it says sorceries or witchcraft, which is it? Is sorcery? Uh, I understood was drugs uh, or drugs. Craft. Sorceries is drugs. What do you mean by that? Well, I I heard someone uh, say that this was having to deal with uh, like street drugs. Pharmacia. It's from the Greek. I guess. Oh. If you look at the Greek, it might have the reference to pharmacia. Yeah. Terms. Pharmacia. Okay. Well, that's um, an interesting, an interesting stretch. But uh, yeah, that's that's one of the the things that you could say perhaps, uh, perhaps that that could be uh, something about it because one of the things that you do see in a lot of cultures is the. Uh, use of substances to go into an altered state of consciousness to have contact with uh, the particular deity that you're trying to reach. You see that in ancient Greek culture. You see that in in Asian cultures of various forms. You see that in uh, some uh, sects in the in the Middle East today, where they will be using some either a uh, some sort of a substance to get into an altered state, or they will um, put themselves into a physical behavior like twirling around and for long, long periods of time until they go into an altered state of reality. So, thus you can see the, the difference with the, like the Apostle Paul keeps talking about being sober-minded, that that is not how the 
the um, you go and have a connection with God is to be in an altered state, which is why the priesthood said you are not to be drinking on duty. You're not to be stumbling into the the tabernacle. And later on in Israel's history, when you did have priests stumbling into the tabernacle, that was not a not a good thing. Now, when you see later on, like uh, specifically around Sukkot, you see the instruction there to uh, buy things that will be uh, bringing joy, and one of which is related to strong drink. But that is separate from the direct service to God, and that's not like you get plastered so that you can meet God. (laughs) No, that's uh, something quite different. So, thus, um, you're talking about murdered sorceries. This is uh, sorceries where you're looking to get in touch with another deity. Now, there are some that may have a good point when they say that uh, some of what happens in modern mental health may have some relation to what people have done to their minds with uh, various substances to open the door to something else. And there's an indication that that could indeed be the the pathway that we see going on. But, uh, yeah, this is specifically doing something to get in touch with something other than God in that category of demons or something that you're going to make a representation of something that is not God. So I would like to receive a correction. Uh, uh, First, I have a question. Uh, they it says that uh, rebellion is as a spirit of witchcraft. Hmm. So, uh, in my case, if I'm eating food that I know is not good for my body, and I'm getting sick, is that a spirit of rebellion? Hmm. And and an interesting point, you know, when people will do something to bring themselves into a, and that could be. Eating a substance, overeating, doing uh, various things to injure injure yourself. Now that uh, that that is that is a good point because um, the reason why I'm a bit hesitant is I I come from a tradition that uh, made they even made um, health as almost a eleventh commandment and uh, wielded it. Um, accordingly so I am extremely hesitant to start bringing that back in to say that health is an 11th commandment that you need to repent from because you know there's a lot of things that you can do in life such as you know spending too much time reading this or doing too much time leading that and not doing the things that you should be doing but um, even the apostle Paul said that Yes, exactly. There are things that are just not profitable. There, there's occupations you get into that are not profitable. There's all kinds of things that are not profit are not profitable. Now, the, the danger is is where you start saying that they are unlawful according to the law of God and start bringing down penalties of of heaven and earth into the realm of that. And that I think is a bridge too far. Um, Yes, Pamela? You had a question or a comment? 
I don't know if that helps at all, Rose, but I just would would caution to to uh, go too far in that direction. Yes, Pamela. My comment is that if a person has a craving for what we call junk food, it might be a, a, a desire for salt or something creamy. So you can substitute those things um, in your diet with things that are uh, healthy but still creamy, like yeah. avocado mashed like guacamole instead of something else that's creamy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, also... For salt, which makes you want chips and things like that. Right. You know, there's there are the physiological things, but you know there's also uh, social things like that. You know, like uh, drinking water. Here in California, uh, drinking water is almost a twelfth commandment. But you can drink far too much water uh, and uh, put your your whole body into a crash cycle. So you just have to be extremely careful in bringing things of health into a "thus saith the Lord" thing. So I would caution strongly about saying that these things uh, become a spiritual thing. But anything that does start distracting you away from God, be extremely, um, be extremely uh, cautious when you start seeing things that drag you away. Even if they are, even if they are a thing that you might say is a good thing, like food or a hobby or something like that. If it's taking you down a path that's away from God, be extremely careful. Any other thoughts before we uh, move on further? So, yeah, Rose, in, in that regard, um, sorceries is, can be definitely connected to pharmacology and uh, altered states of uh, using substances. But then again, you know, you can overdo pretty much anything. It's uh, the things that, that can get us going in a healthy direction are definitely profitable for life. But do you start going into the realm of, of sin by doing this or that? Then you start getting into the advice that um, uh, Paul was counseling on, um, speaking to people that were into the more ascetic, um, sex of the Greek philosophy, where they say, you know, do not handle, do not touch. Those those people were taking the idea that to abstain from things was to get you into a closer connection with the divine. So, but then again, you do see the instruction that you have related to prayer and fasting. So, abstaining from things, we know that in the time of Yom Kippur, can also help you be free of distractions to clear your mind but to think that those things in and of themselves are a connection to the divine is where you then have to really um, walk with caution so thus you can see where the importance of moderation in various things is incredibly important because they can be profitable but then they can be unprofitable as well Another passage here in uh, the letter from Yaakov, uh, James, chapter 2, verses 22 and 24 through 24. You see that faith was working in his works, talking through with Avraham, and as a result of his works, faith was perfected. And as the scripture says, and Avraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And one of the important things is to have the surety in the things that are not seen, and thus to have the connection with God, you know, panim to panim, face to face, is a part of having uh, the surety, the assurance, the trust in the things that are not seen, specifically in the Lord, the one who is not seen, but makes everything that we do see operate. The next passage to take a look at is in Hebrews chapter 3, kind of moving the, uh, rolling back the tape on the book of Hebrews a little bit into chapter 3, where there is this uh, dialogue that runs through chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Hebrews, reflecting on uh, this passage from Psalm 95, where it says, you know, I swore in my anger, you will not enter my rest. So this passage here in Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 9 says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. So this is a passage that also going back not only psalm 95 but psalm 95 riffs on a passage that we read here just recently in exodus chapter 17 about masa and meribah and you know being without water and uh declaring hey god are you with us or not and the key punchline that you have in here is where it says they saw my works for 40 years now that that brings up a very interesting point when you when you look at this is that even as we will uh, read again here soon in coming weeks that there was the time where the people of Israel uh, were told to go enter the land the Lord is going to be with you the Lord will conquer anything that you encounter but they get the bad report back um, they get the I guess they would call that the the eighty percent um, uh, bad report. That said, hey, this this place is beyond our ability to to do it. So the 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 walls are too high. The giants are too tall. Um, it's got lots of stuff like you know, giant clusters of grapes. But getting that is going to be facing challenges that are too big for us to to deal with. So, a part of you could say a part of mercy. Even though there was judgment for that first generation that came out that would not trust the Lord and not and would go into the land based on everything that they had seen, the crossing of the Red Sea, the provision of manna uh, for six days a week, double on the sixth day, that they saw all this, they experienced all this, but they would not trust and then go in. But for 40 years they had the benefit of having the Hamishkan, the dwelling place, in their midst. Because later on in Israel's history, you know, first it moved to, to Shiloh, and then when, when David brought it up uh, to Jerusalem, and then when Solomon had the temple built, there it was, it was like the, the place of the other, because the other tribes, they lived elsewhere 
in the country. They weren't camped around it directly, kind of like looking and seeing, okay, there's the, the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire at night. That constant reminder, hey, the Lord is in our midst. Then it was a little bit removed. And what happens when, <laughs> you know, that, that old aphorism that we have, you know, out of sight, out of mind? Well, what do you do if you don't have that continual reminder all the time? You have instructions in the Torah as to how to continually bring this into your mind. You have the, the, the uh, practice that started very early in Israel's history with the, uh, with the reciting of the Shema, but also in the Shema encapsulized there, you've got the physical reminders of on your doorposts of your house. And also the, the reminders on your hand and your forehead, and also the reminders that traveled around with you related to the tzitzitot or the, the tassels, the hem in your garment. Those would be continual reminders, but you didn't have the grandeur of the tabernacle, the mishkan, right in your midst, right there in your camp anymore. So... One of those things that it then took was to continually cement the, cement the presence of the Lord, cement the fear of the Lord, that the Lord is actually seeing you, even when you can't see the Mishkan anymore. You can't like, look out your door and say, oh, there it is. So, does it still remain in your thoughts, remain in your heart all the time? Continue on and you'll see how this moves from the Mishkan into where it was intended to be all the time. John chapter 6 verse 30 talks about, And so they said to him, Then what will you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform? So, again, it was like, okay, we want to see this, to see this action so that we will know who sent you and what was the uh, the the <laughs> response to this ah every generation is looking for a sign but you're not going to get one except what and a couple of different uh renditions you get this response you're not going to get one except the the sign of Yonah. you know repent 30 days 30 days, it's going to be destroyed, actually. It wasn't even the, the call for repentance. They just, the people heard the 30 days, and this will be overturned, and uh, they repented, even down to symbolizing it with their oxen. And now that was Nineveh. That was not even in Israel. So, <laughs> thus you can see uh, Yonah uh, the, getting perplexed that, hey, this is coming to a people that's not Israel, and yet, they are turning around and repenting. So, thus, the sign of Yonah was a good sign for that generation of Israel that Yeshua was speaking to, that, hey, look at what happens with the nations. Look what happens with the so-called deplorables in your society. They are hearing, they are responding, why aren't you? Passage here from Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 14 through 16. And kind of uh, take going between the, the Beatitudes, the uh, happy are you if you do this, and 
So sandwiched in between the happy are you statements that uh, begin the Sermon on the Mount down to verse 17, which is where you have the, the preamble to the, the Sermon on the Mount that is saying, hey, the things that are in the Law and the Prophets, those are not going to change by what I'm going to tell you next. So in between that, you have this statement here, um, you could say a bit of a uh, parable where it says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. So, thus you have this parable that is talking about your works, the things that you do will point people, they will see that and say, wow, you're different. Where do these works come from? How has your life changed like this? And they will look to the one who has changed us, changed us to be, to be different. So, Thus, when we see in the, in the tabernacle, when we were in the, the HaKodesh, the, the holy place, you have this menorah. Now, we, we talked about in detail some of the designs that go into the menorah and uh, some ancient renditions of what this thing may have looked like and what uh, elements are uh, discussed on this. Uh, we have a, an extensive teaching on that at halal.info slash lessons dash from dash the dash menorah <laughs> but if you go into the, the the readings for this week on the um that we talked about earlier you can you can find the links to the lessons we've talked about with the menorah but the ideas of the the blossoms and the bowls the basically to point the light that these um blossoms were pointing the light toward forward facing the bread so the eyes of God is looking out onto the people of Israel. So thus, what is the lesson then of the bread, the bread of the face, the face bread? We are facing our deeds, the things that we are, is facing the one who sees all. So the Lord who sees, you know, Yahweh Yirah, he is the one who sees us, sees our innermost parts. Nothing is hidden from us. Now, we may want to hide, but he will see it anyway. So, then, how then should we live? It is you know, like working with an, a, an accountability partner who knows everything anyway. So, thus, what is the important thing to do? It is to confess, to say, yeah. I am I am deserving of what's coming to me because you know what I've done, you know how I should have done this and I didn't, how I did that and I shouldn't have, but I want to go in a different direction. Now, just a last little thing uh, as we close out today, looking at another important feature now as we go past the the hakodesh the the holy place then we look at the kodesh hakadashim the holy of holies something very interesting to reflect upon is that the whole tabernacle is oriented around the <laughs> the ark of the covenant the ark of the testimony 
everything around it is. It is the focal point, and you can understand why, because the one who, the Holy One of Israel, is meeting with and dwelling amongst Israel at that place, the place where he decided, I want to put my finger down into the planet, there meeting between the Cherevim. Now, when you think about this, what is inside what is inside the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony? We talked about that back in the Parashah Yitro, back in the Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Those two tablets there, and later on, there would be the other elements in there, bowl of manna and Aaron's rod that budded. So, the elements there talking about the provisions of God at the very heart, the, the change from within, the leadership from within. The words of God, that's what's encased in. That is what the foundation is where the Lord has his throne. So, thus when we are sort of think into the world today, you know, if you go into Washington, D.C. and get a chance to go down to the National Archives and take a look at the uh, one of the you know, original copies here of the Constitution of the United States. You've probably seen this in movies or in documentaries that the, or have gotten a chance to see it yourself, the place where they have the, the copies of the Constitution. And you probably have read about it, that they built this incredible vault that will take the, the Constitution in for safekeeping in a place where the, the, the climate and temperature, humidity and everything is tightly controlled. And also, it's said to be nuke-proof where you know, it won't be destroyed in some sort of calamity or destruction. Now, this is... You could say a point of the call of a Homer, and we've talked about this because it, it features a lot in the letter to the Hebrews. You know, if this much is true, then how much more this? It's a very common thing you see in Hebrew literature and rabbinic writings as a, an argumentation uh, tool. Apostle Paul uses it quite a lot. It is the idea that if you accept this thing, which is you could say a lighter matter or a uh, thing that is of the earth or a, a thing that is of uh, lesser consequence, then how much more should you accept that which is of the same character, but of much more consequence? So, we here, and in our particular country here in the United States, uh, we go through this kind of protection for the founding document of this country. Well, then how much more should the founding document for the people of God also protect the protect the founding document the, the the foundation for it so thus what you see with the ark is uh saying that hey this is the special foundation part of the whole people of god the whole thing that the god is starting on earth the place where above it is where the um presence of the of god then meets with meets with humanity calls out from calls out from the tabernacle so if that is important for people important for a country how much more then would for the people of god treasure 
this, which is uh, kept in a specially designed box in a specially designed place, and where the presence of the Lord is meeting above it, how much more should then we treasure this as well? and take it to be the foundation. Now, one of the things you might say in a corollary, when a country decides to go away from its founding documents, it can go astray. It can lose its way. Thus, you see in Israel's history, when Israel went away from its foundation, from its foundational documents, from the one who started it forward, then it went astray. It went downhill as well. It happens It happens to countries. It happens to the people of God. It happens in families when you go away from where you started, you know, between you know, husband and wife, when you lose your first love, as it's described in Revelation, then your relationship can go into a different place. And sometimes it's not a good place. So, thus, when you start to realize that you've gone astray, what then do you do? Do you just keep running faster away? Or do you say, no, we've got to turn back, we've got to restore, we've got to go back to the things that were foundational. Even if, you know, you've grown, you've matured, you've, you've become a, um, a better person along the way, you say, okay, I'm going back to where the foundation was, and then I'm going to go forward. That's key to what Paul's argument is with the idea of, you know, uh, where one has learned from a tutor, then you don't need the tutor anymore. Well, is that saying that you never need to go back and you can throw out your old uh, lessons that you learned? Or do you say, okay, I go back to the foundational teachings of the tutor and then build on that and move forward? So, with that, into the Holy of Holies. And this particular place where heaven is meeting with earth, the place of the meeting, the place of the appointment, the place of the dwelling, this is a very special place because in this, we'll just close with this from Psalm 119. We're just saying that this is a good thing to reflect upon sections of it that relate uh, that this acrostic um, psalm, that look at the sections of it that relate to your name and the letter of it, and that can be a blessing to reflect on these particular passages. Now, in Psalm 119, verses 10 through 12, we get this wonderful statement that says, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. That is one of the key lessons of the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, is that like that Ark where the testimony of the Lord, the Lord's commandments, the Lord's teachings, they are kept in that special gold-covered box where the dwelling place of the Lord is above. Thus, we also, in a like manner, treasure these, have these things in the Ark of us. That, just like in the center of the Ark of the Testimony is the words of God, 
thus in the center of us, in the ark of our lives, that we treasure, we keep these commandments of God inside of us. And then what do you do? Do you do you shut up the box and then never consult it ever again? It's like, okay, we got this nice little trinket inside of us and then never reflect on it. No. It's one of the key things that Yeshua talked about in Mark chapter 7. He's like, out of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. The mouth speaks. The words speak. You know, we read just in Matthew chapter 5 that let your light shine and a part of the, the lights, the, the menorah of our lives, that just as God sees us, thus that what God has done in our lives can be projected out and be visible and light up the world that is growing ever darker as time goes on. So that's where we'll close things out here today. Any last thoughts before we, we end our time here together? All right, we'll close things up with prayer here today. Father God, we thank you for giving us your words and for giving us your testimony. Father, we thank you for all of the servants that you've given us to take your words into our hearts. And Father, we just ask that you continue to help these words of yours grow within us. We thank you for giving us your word made flesh in your son Yeshua. And Father, we just pray for the day when your kingdom will come. The Mashiach will come to set up your kingdom in all the earth. And that your word will go out into the nations to light up the world that is sinking into greater darkness day by day. Father, we thank you for all these blessings you give us in the name of your son Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.